Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 8th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Zelensky calls for a preventative strike against Russia, while Biden warns of nuclear Armageddon. The FBI reportedly has enough evidence to prosecute Hunter Biden. President Biden will pardon federal marijuana possession convictions. Parts of a New York gun law are blocked. Amnesty calls India police flogging Muslims a serious rights violation. The U.S. blacklists a Chinese drone giant. The U.S. sanctions alleged Myanmar arms traffickers. The U.N. dismisses debate on alleged Chinese Xinjiang abuses. Bank of America will pay $1.8 billion in a mortgage crisis settlement. And the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded to Ukrainian, Russian, and Belarusian activists. In our top story, we look at the latest in the Ukraine crisis as Zelensky calls for a preventative strike and Biden warns of nuclear Armageddon. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, Reuters, Guardian, TASS, and Ukraine Forum. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday appeared to call for NATO allies to launch a nuclear first strike against Russia. Quote, what must NATO do, he said. I am once again turning to the international community as I did before 24 February. Preventative strikes so that Russia knows what will await if they use a nuclear weapon, not the other way around. Serhii Nikiforov, Zelensky's press secretary, claimed the Ukrainian leader was referring to preventative sanctions, but this suggestion was rejected by Russian representatives. On Friday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Zelensky's comments essentially presented the world with further evidence of the threats posed by the Kyiv regime. This is why a special military operation was launched to neutralize them. Elsewhere, U.S. President Joe Biden told the Democratic fundraiser in New York, quote, We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. He added, in reference to Kremlin leader Vladimir Putin, he's not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova rejected the accusation. We do not intend to participate in this terrible discourse, in this escalation of nuclear rhetoric, with tensions climbing up point by point each time, she said, adding, We have repeatedly said and confirmed this. There can be no winners in such a war, and it should never be unleashed. On the ground, while pro-Russia separatists from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, claim to have captured three settlements in the region, a Ukrainian strike on the bridge in the Kherson region killed five civilians and injured five others. Russian media reported that the strike occurred while a bus was crossing the bridge near the village of Darivka. Meanwhile, the death toll from a Russian strike on Zaporizhia on Thursday has risen to 11, with a further 13 people injured. Ukrainian officials said 15 people were also missing. A further civilian was reported killed in Zaporizhia, while two people were killed in Mykolaiv and one in Kherson. On Friday, renewed Russian strikes were reported in Sumy, Dnipropetrovsk, and Zaporizhia, with no additional reports of civilian casualties at this stage. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are our narrative spins, beginning with the anti-Russia narrative from Foreign Affairs. Putin is effectively taking the world hostage with his increasingly alarmist nuclear rhetoric. He has created an apocalyptic ultimatum. Either he wins in Ukraine or he'll ensure the globe faces nuclear annihilation. And we have a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. 
Russia has consistently reaffirmed that there are no winners in a nuclear war and that such a conflict must never be unleashed. America is whipping up a frenzy with its nuclear rhetoric and anti-Russian aggression. And the Moscow Times brings us an establishment critical narrative. While the West focuses on Putin's alleged willingness to unleash nuclear Armageddon, they appear unfazed by what seems to be an overt call from Zelensky for a first strike. This only further highlights their clear double standards. And a nerd narrative says there's a 7% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated in Ukraine before 2023. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I remember, Scott, when I was young, in grade school, we had to do, like, drills. like Duck and cover stuff? Duck and cover stuff, yeah. I remember in my cafeteria, which was, like, the basement of my elementary school, there was, like, a big, like, nuclear symbol, like, this is the fallout shelter. Right. Like, this this cafeteria is the fallout shelter. So, hopefully, the first strike would happen during lunchtime. That would be nice. Exactly, yeah. And never during recess, you know. (laughs) No, that would be the worst, yeah. Oh, no. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Our next story, the FBI has enough evidence to prosecute Hunter Biden. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, BBC News, CBS, Forbes, and CNN. U.S. federal agents believe there's enough evidence to criminally charge President Biden's son, Hunter, with tax crimes and making a false statement related to a gun purchase, according to undisclosed sources familiar with the matter. The younger Biden has been under federal investigation since 2018. The probe initially focused on finances related to his overseas business ties and consulting work, but more recently has reportedly centered on his income reporting and whether he lied on gun purchase paperwork in 2018. The alleged evidence has reportedly been sent to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware. Meanwhile, Chris Clark, an attorney for Hunter Biden, has responded by accusing the FBI of leaking the information from grand jury proceedings, an act he says is a federal felony that he expects the Department of Justice will diligently investigate and prosecute. Trump-appointed attorney David Weiss is reportedly overseeing the investigation and has yet to decide whether to bring charges against Hunter Biden. Biden's legal team reportedly met with Justice Department prosecutors in recent weeks to argue against a potential case. A decision isn't expected until after the midterm elections. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We do have uh, we do have three spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from New York Post. This latest report conveniently fails to acknowledge any previously proposed charges involving Hunter Biden's sketchy overseas business dealings, which would call into question the president's involvement, raising concern that this investigation will amount to little more than a slap on the wrist. Like any other American, Hunter Biden must abide by the law and be justly punished for his clear offenses. The fact his father is the president should have no sway in the matter. Contrast that with this Democratic narrative from The Washington Post. The right is trying to turn a story about Hunter Biden into one about his father. Besides the obvious fact that these are two completely separate individuals, the case against Hunter may never even come to fruition. Whether charges are brought or not, we should remember that this story is about Hunter, not the president. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story, saying that there's a 42% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted before November 5th, 2024. In our next story, President Biden making other headlines as he plans to pardon federal marijuana possession convictions. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, New York Times, Fox News, and Reuters. 
President Joe Biden has pardoned thousands convicted of simple cannabis possession in the U.S. in a move that, according to estimates, will overturn the criminal records of roughly 6,500 people. The pardon only applies to those convicted of the low-level offense of simple possession, while people imprisoned for trafficking, sales, or other marijuana-related charges will not benefit. The White House has clarified that nobody is currently detained in federal prison for simple possession alone. Biden also encouraged governors to adopt his stance and pardon those convicted on state charges of simple possession, who far outnumber those at the federal level. The president further suggested that his administration intends to review whether marijuana should continue to be in the same legal category as drugs, including LSD and heroin. The White House cited disproportionate racial representation in possession conviction figures. According to the White House, white people and people of color use marijuana at similar rates, but black and brown people have been arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionate rates. Marijuana has been legalized in almost 40 states, either for medical and or recreational use, but it's still illegal at the federal level. A majority of U.S. citizens reportedly support wider legalization of the drug, something Biden's move could help usher in. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts. We have a Democratic narrative spin from NewsBud. Finally, a president has recognized the problem of mass marijuana incarceration in the U.S. This should be a measure of hope that Democrats will, with the support of the majority of Americans, legalize marijuana and put an end to needless criminalizing and discriminatory law enforcement. And the Republican narrative coming from Voice of America. Biden is gifting criminals in a blanket pardon in the midst of a crime wave and the brink of a recession. Many of these offenders pled down from more serious charges. And this, quote, radical move is just a desperate attempt to distract from failed leadership and score political points in the lead up to the midterms. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says that there's an 80% chance that marijuana will be legal for recreational use in a supermajority of strongly Republican U.S. states before 2041. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Scott, I all of a sudden have a craving to go watch Up and Smoke with Cheech and Chong. Mm, yeah, feud some Doritos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> A U.S. judge temporarily blocks parts of a New York gun law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Reuters, The New York Times, Politico, and ABC. A federal judge on Thursday temporarily blocked parts of New York State's new Concealed Carry Improvement Act to allow six gun advocates to file a lawsuit challenging the new legislation. New York's gun law, which took effect on September 1st, established new requirements for obtaining a license, including submitting social media accounts for review and banning firearms in many public and private places. Judge Glenn T. Sutterby of the Northern District said the attempt to ban guns in places deemed sensitive, like museums, Times Square, and anywhere alcohol is served, was impermissible. He said his ruling to take effect in three business days, giving the state room to appeal. Sutterby wrote that the new law requiring gun applicants to show, quote, good moral character only led to retaining and even expanding the open-ended discretion afforded to its licensing officers. New York Attorney General Letitia James said her office plans to appeal the decision, claiming that common-sense gun control regulations help save lives, and that it was deeply disappointing that the judge wants to limit my ability to keep New Yorkers safe. Those were the facts, and we do have the spins, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Washington Examiner. There's no proof that rises in homicides or suicides in the U.S. are directly related to gun sales, but liberals apparently don't need it to push their agenda. 
Gun sales rise because of crime, not the other way around. And the sooner we understand this and tackle the underlying cause of violence, the safer America will become. The Center for American Progress brings us the democratic narrative. Gun lobbyists in the U.S. continue to spew a series of common myths to undermine legitimate arguments for common-sense gun reforms like those seen in New York. To protect future generations, policymakers throughout America must reject these harmful myths and instead rely on implementing meaningful regulations. And we're hearing from the nerds for this story as well, saying that there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before 2025. That comes from the Metaculous Prediction Community. I'm going to file that nerd narrative under the uh, Lloyd Christmas, so you're saying there's a chance category. That's tough. (laughs) So you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) In our next story, India police violating serious human rights by flogging Muslims. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Global Village Space, NDTV, The National News, and Telegraph. Human rights group Amnesty International has condemned the public flogging of Muslims by police in the BJP-ruled Indian state of Gujarat. A video of Tuesday's incident in the village of Udela constitutes, quote, a serious human rights violation, according to the organization, and shows, quote, utter disrespect towards the law. Viral recordings show Muslim men who were detained for allegedly throwing stones during Hindu celebration Navrati Garba tied to a pole and publicly flogged with canes by officers in plain clothes. Meanwhile, police in uniform stand by along with a significant crowd that included women and children cheering and chanting. According to VR Bajpai, a senior officer, women and men were injured during Garba. Muslims started the stone pelting. Thirteen people have been arrested. They have also confessed to the crime. Authorities have reportedly been unable to confirm the details of the incident, although the content of the video has sparked backlash. Garba sees huge annual events take place across India, where people assemble in parks and community halls in traditional dress and dance in large circles. Although historically an inclusive celebration, which has sometimes included Muslim artists singing devotional songs, Hindu nationalist groups have sought a ban on Muslim participation in recent years. The incident has drawn widespread attention to issues of alleged minority oppression in India, where incidents of sectarian violence are frequent. Under the governance of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his BJP, which came to power in 2014, various laws targeting Muslims have been introduced, and Muslims and Christians have faced attacks by Hindu nationalists. According to senior Communist Party politician Brinda Karat, The election of the BJP government has seen, quote, religious festivities becoming occasions to create and deepen fault lines between communities. In a separate event on Monday, the houses of three Muslim men were demolished in the BJP-ruled state of Madhya Pradesh after a fight developed at a Garba event. Thanks for those disturbing facts. Eric Al Jazeera brings us Narrative A. Islamophobia is the norm in Modi's India, having been condoned and even encouraged by the BJP. Intolerance of religious minorities, especially Muslims, has always been a central feature of Hindu nationalist ideology in India. This latest incident is just further evidence of this oppressive framework practically cementing itself in Indian society. And narrative B comes from Daily Guardian. Only religious codes which don't intervene with the lifestyle of other religious groups would be feasible in a democracy such as India's. Although the content of Tuesday's video hasn't been fully clarified, authorities have confirmed that detained Muslims were targeting a Hindu festival and that innocent bystanders were injured as a result. When religious practices undermine the Indian system and constitution, they must face scrutiny. 
And don't look now, but we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 55% chance that there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India before the year 2030. The U.S. blacklists a Chinese drone giant. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the South China Morning Post, Reuters, Fox News, Washington Examiner, and the Financial Times. On Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Defense, or DOD, added the world's largest drone manufacturer, DJI Technology, along with a dozen other Chinese high-tech firms, to a blacklist of firms with alleged ties to the Chinese military, allowing for sanctions to be imposed against them. This comes after an initial list including Huawei Technologies was published last year in accordance with the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, the annual must-pass bill that guides funding for the U.S. military. The 13 companies added to the blacklist on Wednesday also include surveillance equipment maker Shijang Dawa Technology, rail transit equipment manufacturer and seller CRRC Corp., and BGI Genomics Company Limited, which runs a massive gene databank. Companies blacklisted by the Pentagon are ineligible for partnership with the U.S. military due to security concerns. The listings also aim to counter the modernization of the People's Liberation Army, which allegedly benefits from business with them. DJI was added to the U.S. Commerce Department blacklist in December 2020, and a year later it was designated part of the Chinese Military Industrial Complex by the Treasury Department for its alleged role in the surveillance of Uyghur Muslims. In July 2021, the Pentagon determined that DJI systems posed potential threats to national security, but the FBI and DHS admitted this year they were still purchasing and using DJI drones. The Chinese company had reportedly hired two lobbying firms this year to convince members of Congress not to support the American Security Drone Act, which forbids the government from buying drones from companies deemed as posing a risk to national security. Scott gave us the facts for that story. Now we have the spins, beginning with an anti-China narrative coming from Epoch Times. This is a much-needed move to mitigate threats to U.S. national security. Although they may focus on developing civil technologies, these firms are deeply entangled with the military-industrial complex, as the Chinese Communist Party actively promotes military-civil fusion in order to expand and modernize its forces. And the Global Times brings us the pro-China narrative. As the U.S. continues its baseless crackdown on China's scientific and technological rise to maintain its SciTech hegemony, Washington is only ensuring its own downfall. This move may provoke short-term damage, but its long-term impact will be limited considering the U.S.'s direct investment in China represents only 2% of all foreign investment. And a nerd narrative says there's a 10% chance that there will be active warfare between the U.S. and China before 2027. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I can't imagine any kind of warfare between the U.S. and China. Right. What is an inactive warfare? Almost that feels like what's going on right now. The posturing, the cyber attacks, Mm -hmm. espionage, things like that. And then active warfare would be- Boots on the ground. Not even necessarily, yeah, boots on the ground or just drones in the air, like as this story talks (laughs) about. I mean, I don't know. Right. The unknown. In our next story, the U.S. sanctions alleged Myanmar arms traffickers. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Diplomat, CNN, and Voice of Nigeria. The U.S. on Thursday sanctioned Ong Myo Myint and Hleng Myo Myint, the owners of Dynasty International, as well as the company's director for allegedly procuring Russian-made weapons and aircraft from Belarus and supplying them to Myanmar's military regime. When announcing the sanctions, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken referenced the regime's recent executions of pro-democracy activists in July, 
and its helicopter attack on a school on September 16th. He said the latest round of sanctions target the Myanmar military's ties to Russia and Belarus. Ong Myo Myint is the son of one of the regime's military officers, who is believed to have facilitated the deals involving missiles and aircraft with Belarus, with the sanctions barring any American from doing business with him or his alleged co-conspirators. The State Department also placed former chief and deputy home affairs minister on its sanctions list over his alleged involvement in the extrajudicial killings of protesters following the country's February 2021 coup. Russia is one of the Myanmar junta's primary suppliers of ammunition and one of the only internationally vocal post-coup supporters of the regime. Over 2,300 people have been killed and a million more displaced since the junta came to power. Thanks for the facts, Eric. Singapore Post gives us the establishment critical narrative. The U.S. has played an active role in strengthening the junta's military capacity as its months-long series of sanctions against Russia and its allies have only made Putin friendlier with the Myanmar dictatorship. As the West continues to attack Russia both militarily and economically, Putin can now only search for partners in the East. A pro-establishment narrative comes from Voice of America. As these weapons deals help support the junta's lethal crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, the U.S. has no choice but to sanction both governments and private individuals involved in procuring them. The U.S. must continue these sanctions to hinder Min Ong Hlaing's vicious tactics against his people. The U.N. dismisses debate on China's alleged Xinjiang abuses. Here are the facts of this story, as agreed upon by Axios, Al Jazeera, DW, Reuters, and Jerusalem Post. On Thursday, the U.N. Human Rights Council, or UNHRC, rejected a Western-led motion to hold a debate on alleged Chinese human rights abuses after a U.N. report concluded that China's actions against the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang may constitute crimes against humanity. The motion for a debate was defeated by a vote of 19 to 17, with 11 countries abstaining. A number of the countries that voted no were Muslim-majority nations, such as Indonesia, Somalia, Pakistan, the UAE, and Qatar. The proposal was co-sponsored by the UK, Canada, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Australia, and Lithuania. The U.S. envoy to the UNHRC, Michelle Taylor, said she was disappointed by the vote, adding, We will continue to seek justice and accountability for victims of human rights abuses and violations. Meanwhile, Hua Shenying, China's foreign affairs spokesperson, said via Twitter that human rights must not be used as a pretext to make up lies and interfere in other countries' internal affairs or to contain, coerce, and humiliate others. The defeat is only the second time in the Council's 16-year history that a motion has been rejected, as well as the first time that China's human rights record has been brought to the table. China has faced increasing scrutiny over its treatment of Muslims and other ethnic minorities in recent years, with the U.S. and other Western nations describing the situation as genocide, which China vehemently denies. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Two spins have emerged, and we begin with an anti-China narrative coming from The Straits Times. It's hugely disappointing that this motion was shot down, especially by countries with Muslim populations. The proposal only sought to open a debate about China's abuse and mistreatment of Muslims, and it seems that those who voted against it did so out of fear of losing Chinese economic investment. And the Global Times brings us the pro-China narrative. Though Western nations, specifically the U.S., love to pontificate about human rights, this is only to serve the West's geopolitical interests. It's quite telling that prominent Muslim-majority countries like the UAE and Qatar chose to vote no, proving that the developing world is beginning to wake up and challenge Western hegemony over international affairs. 
In our next story, Bank of America to pay $1.8 billion to AMBAC in mortgage crisis settlement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, American Banker, Wall Street Journal, and Seeking Alpha. Bringing an end to the last of the North Carolina-based mortgage lenders' lawsuits involving the 2008 financial crisis, Bank of America on Friday agreed to pay bond insurer AMBAC Financial Group $1.84 billion. The agreement resolves all pending AMBAC lawsuits, stemming from a dispute over the mortgage-backed securities company Countrywide, which Bank of America bought in 2008 and was accused of misrepresenting the quality of its loans ahead of the crisis. One of the suits involved 17 residential mortgage-backed securities, home loans packaged up into debt that are then sold to investors from 2004 to 2006, which Countrywide had underwritten. According to AMBAC, Countrywide knew the loans didn't meet underwriting standards, which would have required the lender to repurchase the mortgages. Unaware of alleged deficiencies, AMBAC insured the loans, leaving them on the hook to pay billions of dollars to investors. AMBAC had originally sought $3 billion in damages. After the settlement, AMBAC, whose stock rose 23% Friday morning, estimates it will gain around $390 million in net reinsurance and discount accretion. This enables the company to repay some of its more than $1.4 billion in debt. Bank of America claimed it had already accrued for much of what it owes in the settlement, though it will reportedly still record a pre-tax cost of $354 million in the third quarter, or $0.03 per share. Thanks for the facts, Eric. Seeking Alpha brings us the establishment critical narrative. Bank of America knew exactly what it was doing when it defrauded bond insurers over a decade ago. When the crisis came and smaller companies like AMBAC saw what had happened, Bank of America decided to bully them through the courts rather than pay for their wrongdoing. Thankfully, the little guy won this time, and Goliath has to pay David what he's owed. A pro-establishment narrative comes from NASDAQ. To claim AMBAC was some small, vulnerable company up against a financial titan is absurd, as it was the second-largest bond insurer in the world at its peak. While everyone likes to pick on Bank of America in light of the 2008 crisis, the truth is that AMBAC accepted the risks of insuring those mortgage-backed securities to profit millions in premiums. And our final story, the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded to Ukrainian, Russian, and Belarusian activists. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NewsBud, The Guardian, Reuters, and Independent. Jailed Belarusian activists Alice Bialyatsky, the Russian organization Memorial, and the Ukrainian Center for Civil Liberties Group have jointly been awarded the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize for their work documenting human rights abuses. The Norwegian Nobel Institute announced the winners on Friday in Oslo. Chair of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, Barrett Rice Anderson, stated that the judges wanted to honor three outstanding champions of human rights, democracy, and peaceful coexistence between Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine. Rice Anderson called on Belarus to release Bialyatsky from prison so the veteran activists can attend the award ceremony on December 10th. Bialyatsky, head of the Belarusian rights group Vyazna, was detained in July 2021 as part of a state response to anti-government demonstrations. Dan Smith, head of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, stated that the Nobel Committee is sending a message that political freedoms, human rights, and active civil society are part of peace. The award is the first peace prize since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. When asked if the awards were anti-Putin, Rice Anderson replied, We always give the prize for something and to something, and not against someone. Each winner will receive approximately $900,000. 
Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We do have some spins to talk about, beginning with an anti-Russian narrative being provided by DW. Although Rice Anderson has dispelled claims that the award was meant to address Putin directly, it's clear that, in reality, the committee's decision is a strong rebuke to Russia and Belarus. This is not a bad thing. The decision has been applauded by human rights activists worldwide and is a gesture of solidarity to those whose access to democracy is under threat. The pro-Russian narrative comes from Belta. Despite the Western prizes and praise they receive, NGOs run by the likes of Bialyatsky simply push political interests under the guise of charitable causes. They shouldn't be applauded, but rather exposed as tools used by the West to impose their ideologies upon those who don't want them. And there's a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 45% chance that Vladimir Putin will be charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court before 2024 according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 8, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.